Welcome to Bibliography, a podcast for people who love a good to-be-read list. I'm David Kern here at Goldberry Books in Concord, North Carolina, and this is a conversation show about the way books make our lives richer. Wiley Cash is our guest this week. He is a North Carolina-based writer whose new novel is called When Ghosts Come Home. It's the story of a North Carolina sheriff named Winston Barnes who is forced to reckon with a complicated and strange murder investigation on the North Carolina coast that is instigated by a mysterious plane crash. Cash's previous award-winning fiction includes A Land More Kind Than Home, The Last Ballad, and This Dark Road to Mercy. He has received numerous awards, including the Southern Book Prize, the Thomas Wolfe Book Prize, the Appalachian Writers Association Book of the Year, among many other prestigious awards. He's been a fellow at Yadu and the McDowell Colony, and he teaches fiction writing and literature at the University of North Carolina, Asheville, where he serves as alumni author in residence. He lives in North Carolina with his wife, photographer Mallory Cash, and their daughters. When Ghosts Come Home is an exciting and suspenseful mystery by one of our state's best writers, and so I was honored to get a chance to chat with Mr. Cash. And as you will hear in this conversation, he reads widely and has really interesting taste. So without further ado, here is Wiley Cash on the books that mean the most to him. Well, Wiley Cash, thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to chat about books with you, especially as you have a new book uh, coming out this fall. Well, thank you so much for having me uh, and, and making the time. So let's talk about this new book for a second before we get into, uh, before we dig into your childhood. <laughs> uh, so, so you've got a new novel. Am I paying for this? Because I, I do need a, a couple of moments to talk about, get stuff off my chest. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see where it goes. I mean, okay. you know. And then, and then at, the, at the end, I'll scan and send you a scan of my insurance card and you can decide. Perfect. Perfect. I'll let, you, I'll let you know where the, what the balance is going to be. <laughs> okay. So you have this new book coming out. What I'd love to know about this book is, since we're here to talk about books... What are the books that, that you were turning to as your kind of guiding lights, your inspiration, maybe your, even your resources as you were writing and editing this new novel? Oh, gosh. Wow, that's a great question, actually. Um, which books was I turning to when I was writing this one? Yeah. You know, I really... Oh, gosh, I wish I had a better answer. I can't really remember what I was reading that made me think, oh my gosh, I'm going to try this. And, and, yeah. and they, may, they may come to me the longer I talk, but I can say that I always read actively. I always read with an eye to what can I take from, from this success this author has? What can I take from um, something particular that impressed me about, about the book at hand? And I, I, I more often than not read with a pen or a pencil in hand than I'm I'm yeah. marking in the books and I'm dog-earing pages so I can come back to them. Um, but with When Ghosts Come Home, I can't really remember anything that I was that I was actively reading. I, I know that I was, David. I know yeah. that I was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, it just it's just not coming to me to me right now. Um, to be honest, you know, I, I can tell you some 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 people that I relied on. I can tell you um, some kind of fortuitous experiences. I. Uh, I, I had an event down in Florida with the library system. Um, I guess it was back in 2018, probably, and I or 2019. I can't remember. And I, I flew down, and uh, a car service picked me up at the airport. And I'm always so um, uncomfortable with car services because <laughs> I, I just like hate sitting in the back seat. I hate yeah. like, somebody yeah. putting my luggage. I'm like, I'll get my luggage. It's fine. Like it, it's fine. <laughs> 
And, um, and I always talk to whoever's driving. So I don't have a smartphone, so I can't like pretend like I'm engaged in something else. <laughs> um, so we're chatting and, and the, the, the guy who picked me up says, you know, what kind of aircraft did you fly on? And, and I said, I don't know, like a plane. It had two seats in a middle row. And he's like, oh, that was a so-and-so. I said, well, how much do you know about, well, how do you know so much about aircraft? He's like, well, I flew, you know, such and such planes. I flew for the government. I flew commercial. Yeah. And I said, do you have any experience with drug planes down here in Florida? And he's like, oh, you know, they were real popular in the eighties and early nineties and that was happening. And I said, how much cocaine can fit in a DC three without missing a beat? He said 10,000 pounds. (laughs) Um, and so I had that kind of, that kind of stuff happen. And, and if folks have read the book, they know that this yeah. mysterious airplane shows up in the middle of the night, 1984, yeah. coastal North Carolina. And then one of my writer friends who I'm sure most of your listeners know, Clyde Edgerton, yeah. um, is an accomplished pilot. And so he lives here in Wilmington and we're friends. So I was reaching out to him a lot with, with just questions about particular kinds of aircraft mm. and how. Uh, a particular aircraft would approach a turf field at night, you know, and he was really helpful um, mm. with all of those things going on. Uh, so, you know, when you write a book, you're pulling from everything, not just yeah. what you're reading, but like little conversations that you're having yeah. with people that, that kind of take surprising turns and you don't realize like what you've been needing is just like falling into your lap. Mm. I love, you know, people say, write what you know, but it seems like so much of writing. When I talk to writers, it's like, I knew nothing about this thing. I just had this situation or this character or this image that my imagination couldn't drop. And so then I had to start digging and I learned stuff that I never knew before. It wasn't like, I know about drug planes. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) That, that is a great maxim, you know, write what you know, and I'll add to that, write what you know, or write what you're willing to find out. Hmm. And, and, and sometimes what keeps, a book, I mean, writing a book, like the kinds that I write, like the kind of writer that I want to be is, is, a, is a writer who really gets into the characters and the setting. And, and I can say with When Ghosts Come Home, I knew who these characters and what the setting was going to be before I really knew how the plot was going to unfold. Like, this hmm. is my first real mystery that's got twists and turns in it yeah. in various places. And, and I don't know how to do any of that consciously. I'm not uh, a clever enough writer to, to to set out to write a mystery like so many writers that I re- admire and respect are. So, you know, setting with the project for, you know, I worked on this book for a very long time, much longer than I should have. Um, <laughs> but I really, when COVID hit, knuckled down and, and, and really finished the book and kind of reimagined all the work I had done on it thus far. But when you're spending, you know, a year on a project, five years on a project, there has to remain some element of mystery, some element of not knowing that keeps mm. the page feeling fresh to you. And, mm. and, and that's what kept me coming back to this book over the years and really wanting to see it through and get to the bottom of these impulses and, and, and these turns. So if this is your first real mystery, as you said, that has kind of the, the plot elements and the machinations that you find in a typical mystery story, you said that there were there were mystery writers who you respect. Who are who are some of those writers that are primarily working in that form? Gosh, there are so many great writers, um, you know, that are writing like literary mystery, literary thrillers, and thinking about a writer like Attica Locke. 
Um, her books, Bluebird, Bluebird and Heaven, My Home, were really um, influential in terms of local color, in terms of like strong central leads who are conflicted people um, who have ghosts in their past that are vi- being visited upon them in various ways. Um, Lou Burney is a great mystery thriller writer. Um, his book, November Road, had a huge impact on me. I was definitely reading that when I was writing When Ghosts Come Home and, and some things he does at the end of the book, which really surprised me without feeling compromised. Hmm. Um, I took that and, and when I was when I was writing When Ghosts Come Home. And I'm circling back to your question now because I'm remembering yeah. the book that I was reading. And, and one of them that also, it's, which is not a mystery at all, is um, Lily King's novel, Writers and Lovers, mm. um, that came out uh, probably two years ago. Um, just a gorgeous portrait of, of a young woman who's struggling with some of her life decisions while trying to make art. I have a, a female protagonist in my novel who's mid-20s who comes back home with her life kind of in shambles. And, and, and I took a lot from Lily King's portrayal mm. of... Uh, a woman struggling against a lot of odds, a lot of social, familial, um, professional pressures to be what other folks think she might need to be while she's still figuring out who she wants to be. And so all of those, you know, came to bear when I was writing. So I said, we got to talk about your childhood. (laughs) So you grew up Gastonia, right? Gastonia, Mm -hmm. North Carolina, the other side of Charlotte from where we are. So not too far down, you know, highway 85, uh, that direction anyway. Um, Do you remember the first time you fell in love with a book? The first time I fell in love with a book. You know, I was really fortunate that I, I was raised in a house that encouraged literacy, especially my mom. You know, it was a big deal when you got your library card in my family. Um, the Gaston County Public Library, the main branch on Garrison is a great library. It's still a great library. And um, I remember the sense of freedom I had uh, having that library card. Um, in my childhood, I either shot basketball in the driveway or played in the woods behind our house. We had a huge, at one time, just a huge, huge patch of woods. We'd make Sounds like North Carolina childhood, right? Yeah. Basketball, the woods. (laughs) Yeah. We'd make clubs, shoot BB guns, just, just build just fantastical, dangerous obstacle courses, um, ride our bikes all over the place. But when I wasn't doing those things, whether it were raining um, and I was also of the generation, I'll be 44 uh, by the time this book comes out. I was just pre-Nintendo, right? Mm-hmm. I was born under Atari with the joystick and yeah. the red oh, button. Yeah. And there's yeah. like only so many games you can play before you're like, ah, this is kind of boring. Yeah. Um, so I never really played video games um, ever um, in college or otherwise. And so when I was inside and it was raining... I probably read or drew or played with G.I. Joe figures or something. Mm. But certainly on road trips, we read. I grew up, you know, going to the beach. I loved reading on the beach. I still love reading on the beach. Um, But the first book, uh, and I want to give a shout out. My daughters, uh, who are five and six, just got their first library cards Mm. at the library uh, in Wilmington at the... um, the the uh the pine valley branch uh shout out to the library (laughs) there but um the first book that really left an impression on me there were a couple um one series was albert hitchcock and the three investigators Mm. uh it was a group of i think it was obviously three three young men probably junior high age 
who investigated mysteries. And um, I thought that was so thrilling uh, that they were um, bypassing the adults in their lives to solve mysteries that concerned them. I thought that was so empowering and so interesting. And that, that series left a big impression on me in terms of what kept me going back to the page. And it wasn't only the plots. Like, I don't remember a single plot, but I remember their friendship. I remember how cool their clubhouse was. Um, and, and I think those things resonated with me, like relationships and books, settings and books, mm. that that can be just as important as the plot. And then another was, and I, the name of the book is falling out of my head, but it was something to the effect of the very enormous egg. And it's about a little boy <laughs> on a farm who uh, uh, a dinosaur hatches out of a chicken egg. Uh, and he has <laughs> I, to remember, I think I remember this book. Yeah, he has to raise this dinosaur. And uh, I, I found it, uh, I was going to order it for my girls. And then I, I realized how long ago it had been written. And I thought, oh Lord, what is going to be in this book that I'm going to be, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, those were the books that I, that I really remember leaving, leaving quite an impression on me. But then as I got older, you know, I know you asked about childhood, but as I got older, as a young writer, somebody who took seriously the, the craft of writing, the first book that really just knocked the air out of my chest was The Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. That was really the first novel that really took my breath away. It was the first book that I finished. And the minute I turned the final page, I opened it to the first page to reread it, to try to figure out on a craft level, on a conscious reading as a writer level, how she yeah. had done what she'd done. What did you come up with? Um, just or, or, even in, or even in retrospect now, now that you've had even more time to, to think about it. Yeah, just strong characterizations that, that in Solomon, the plot really, I mean, that's obviously a very literary novel, but the plot is born out of the complications of the characters themselves and the way that they're, they're conflicted in their own desires, the way they're conflicted in their relationships with one another. Um, and that was the first literary novel I read where I could kind of see um, the, the scaffolding of craft holding up mm. that, that novel. So as a writer, do you, ever, do you ever see the value or do you ever force yourself or whatever to turn that sort of reading off? You know, you're reading a book and you can be looking at it with the pen, with the pencil. I mean, maybe you continue to write, mm -hmm. read actively, but to say, okay, I'm not going to try to focus on that scaffolding and I'm just going to kind of let it wash over me. Do you, is that something you have to force yourself to turn off or do you care about that? Or is it, am I just, is this like a false dichotomy that I'm? No, I mean, I think it's something that I can't help but do, but there are times when I am truly just swept up mm -hmm. in the story or I'm so impressed by the writing that I'm hypnotized out of the awareness that I'm participating in the act of reading. A couple of books come to mind. Over the summer, I read Ling Ma's novel, Severance, which is a horror mm -hmm. novel about a great plague that comes, mm -hmm. uh, worldwide plague, uh, rings a bell. Yeah. Um, but it was so terrifying and so visceral. And I'm teaching it this semester. And I read it preparing to teach it. But I read it so engaged with the characters and the story that I kind of forgot to do the normal teacherly, 
markings like, Ooh, this yeah. is a good conversation jumping off point. I didn't do any yeah. of that in that book. So I'm obviously going to read it again, but I'm going to read it as a teacher this time. Yeah. And then another book, which I'm coincidentally also teaching this semester is Jason Mott, a writer from here from North Carolina yeah. who lives down the road from us has a beautiful new novel out called hell of a book. And yeah. much of the writing in that is so beautifully rendered and I was able to really feel that novel and also feel the bracing honesty of that novel in a way that kept kind of knocking me out of my chair as a reader. Um, uh, so those were, those were two books that come to mind where the, that, it did that for me. So you mentioned Jason Mott, North Carolina writer. Um, on this show, we like to, you know, because we're a bookstore in North Carolina, we like to introduce as many North Carolina writers to a wider audience as possible. Um, and there are a lot of really great writers in North Carolina. Um, you know, the, you mentioned Clyde Edgerton there, you know, you've got Ron Rash, you've got, um, Alan Gerganis. Um, who are some of the writers that are from this state or from the Carolinas or just from the area that were the most meaningful to you that maybe when you discovered their books, it made you think about writing and reading and what you could do as a writer in a different way. The first was probably from North Carolina. The first was probably Fred Chapel, who grew up in Western North Carolina in Canton outside Asheville and uh, lives in Greensboro now taught for many years at UNC Greensboro. But I read his novel, uh, I'm one of you forever and, 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 and undergraduate at UNC Asheville. And the fact that he was able to take the stories of rural people in a small town in Appalachia and um, make them so experimental, so creative, so ingenious, you know, akin to almost like a, like a South American Borges Marquez approach to uh, hmm. not magical realism, but just almost like a, like a colloquial re realism or like a hmm. local color, magical realism hmm. that left a huge impression on me because I had never read anything by, by, by a North Carolina writer whose characters talked like people I knew, hmm. right? Because, you know, when you're introduced to literature in high school, you're reading Shakespeare or you're reading Franz Kafka or you're reading, you know, um, Elie Wiesel's Night or you're reading... Um, the Great you know, Gatsby or something, yeah. The Great Gatsby, sure. Or Kate Chopin's Awakening or, or these kind of canonical books yeah. that have been kind of ordained decades or centuries before. And you're not reading, you know, I was born in 1977. You're not reading stuff written in the 80s and the 90s that, that, it, that, is, that is contemporary. Like, you know, we weren't reading Bobby Ann Mason. We weren't reading Clyde Edgerton because those, those were things that were in hardcover on the shelf and bookshelves. And the Academy, which is always slow to react, uh, much slower than independent bookstores are, hadn't welcomed those into the ranks just yet. They're certainly yeah. there now. But when I was there, like I, I didn't know Ron Rash when I was an undergraduate. He had just gotten started. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that Charles Frazier was writing Cold Mountain. I didn't yeah. know that yeah. Lee Smith was writing about Appalachia. I didn't, I didn't know that stuff because that was the province of, of the bookstore community. It wasn't the province of academia. Mm. Um, so I wasn't exposed to them just yet. Um, another writer that did that for me was when I read Look Homeward Angel by Thomas Wolfe. Mm -hmm. 
And I realized, oh my, oh my gosh, this guy took his community and turned it into high literature. And it made me realize that no matter where you're from or where, how you feel about where you're from, that your stories uh, are, wor- are worth literature and are worthy of the page. And then as I got a little older and began looking around, of course, I discovered, you know, Ron Rash and, and, and Lee Smith. And, and I discovered Jill McCorkle my sophomore year of college. Um, I won a literary uh, award and had uh, my first story published in an anthology. And at the, at the awards dinner, Jill came and read, read from her story collection, Final Vinyl Days. And I, uh, I've told her this and her husband, I completely fell in love with her and uh, <laughs> completely fell in love with her writing and her voice and her sense of um, dialect and place. Um, and that was a really affirming experience as well. Um, but there's, there's such a great crop of North Carolina writers who are publishing today. I mean, you mentioned some of the great ones and of course we lost Randall Keenan last year, but, Mm. but, but as far as writers who are, who are turning it out, I'm thinking about Daniel Wallace and thinking Mm -hmm. about Bell Boggs and thinking about, um, Judy Kurtz Goldman there and near Charlotte, um, who's got a memoir coming out, I think early next year. Um, she's a nonfiction writer, primarily just a, just a beautiful writer, um, and then down here on the coast, we've got, as I said, Jason Mott. Um, I'm buddies with Kevin Maurer, who's a nonfiction writer, Clyde Edgerton. Uh, this place is just crawling. Yeah. Dave Joy in the mountains. Oh, sure. Yeah. David's wonderful. Uh, he's a wonderful writer, a wonderful thinker. Um, and what's great about North Carolina, is, and Charles Fraser, of course, is back living in Asheville. What's great about North Carolina is how kind everyone is. There's, there's no jockeying at least that I've experienced, there is no jockeying for primacy. There is no writer trying to be on top. It's just everyone is so kind and so encouraging Mm. and so nurturing um, that it encourages you as kind of an up-and-coming writer um, to to look back and say, like, well, who's coming along behind me? What am I going to do to to reach down the way that Charles Frazier or Lee or Randall Keenan or, or Clyde Edgerton have reached down to me? Yeah. Do you think there's a um like a, a voice or a a common tone or like is there something common about North Carolina fiction writers like something I don't know you so you might say is there something in the water that kind of binds this binds everybody together and creates like a voice or a tone? I don't know exactly how to ask the question but as That's you were lifting question. these people came up. Yeah, I think one thing that is particular to North Carolina and um, versus other Southern states, you know, namely Mississippi, mm-hmm. um, Florida. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of places that, are, that have a, a long history of, 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 of good writing, Louisiana, Virginia. Um, Texas. Yeah, Texas. Larry, Larry McMurtry. <laughs> sure, he, he rings a bell. Yeah. Um, the things that we are grappling with and in many Southern states, and I'm, I'm talking about Southern writing because it's easy to carve out the distinction of Southern writing. It's, yeah. hard, it's yeah. harder for me to say like, what is mid-Atlantic writing? You know, what is, what is New England? New England writing's a little clearer, but that feels a little more antiquated. When I think of New England writing, I think of like Nathaniel Hawthorne and yeah. Robert Austin, uh, yeah. Sarah yeah. Orange Hewitt. Um, yeah. But when I think about Southern writing, I think about cultural upheavals and cultural battles being waged on the page. Uh, When I think about Texas writing, of course, we have, you know, Manifest Destiny, the the, the 
the, the novels of expansion, the novels yeah. of white versus Native Americans uh, warfare, settlers versus um, original first people. Um, and then when I think of something like Mississippi, I think of like kind of the Mississippi ideology of Mississippi against the world or Mississippi being the apotheosis of the old South coming into conflict with contemporary concerns. I think about, um, you know, Quentin Thompson screaming, I love the South. I hate the South. Um, but when I think about North Carolina writing, I think about, and oftentimes when I think about Virginia writing, and this sounds so, so gossipy and I don't mean it to be, I think about, the gentility, the, the the fight against time, the fight against modernity, the the fight to remain regal uh, mm. in, in a place like Virginia. And some of that's in Mississippi writing as well. I'm thinking about like Elizabeth Spencer's Mississippi writing. Yeah. Um, but in North Carolina, what I find that seems to be in many ways consistent, especially with native North Carolina writers, David Joy, uh, Charles Frazier, uh, Randall Keenan. Um, Alan Reganis, what I what I what I what I'm thinking about is this tendency to write about communities in conflict with themselves. Um, that there is no, in much of this writing, there is no outside force coming to bear. The force is, is oftentimes inside. Um, hmm. And I think this is because in North Carolina we are a state that is so conflicted with itself politically, culturally, uh, geographically. Um, even in terms of something as that seems as flippant as sports, you know, between, you know, Duke basketball, and Carolina basketball, yeah. something yeah. as cultural as barbecue, you know, vinegar yeah. or ketchup based. But within these these conflicts, whether they be the conflict of the Civil War that Charles Frazier writes about in Cold Mountain, where natives are turning against one another based on their their beliefs of uh, uh, their, their, their standing for or against slavery or for or against the Confederacy all the way down to, you know, my, when ghosts come home, writing about portrayals of of race and the war on drugs in the mid 1980s. Um, These are all kind of uh, examples of infighting. And and I think it's borne out, Mm. as I said, in our political culture, every four years, you know, we're a swing state. Are we going to be purple? Are we going to be red? Are we going to be blue? Are we going to be some gradient of it? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. And and, and oftentimes it's county by county, you know? in ways that I that I that I that I don't see borne out in the literature of other the native literature of other other states. Hmm. You mentioned the geography. I was thinking about whether I don't remember why this even came up. But on the one side we've got the ocean, and the other side we've got the mountains. We're kind of boxed in. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm I'm generalizing there on the mountains. I understand that, <laughs> but you know we are kind of boxed in, so we've kind of always had to deal with each other. <laughs> there, yeah. You know, and there weren't a lot of people, there weren't a lot of people um, coming to North Carolina once North Carolina got settled. I mean, obviously we've had the, the, the triangle influx in the past two decades and, right. and, yeah. and, the COVID banking gave us, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. COVID gave us a Wilmington influx. Um, but after, after, you know, the civil war and reconstruction, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of carpetbaggers. A lot of people went uh, to Atlanta. A lot of people went to larger cities. And so we've, we've, we've been a place that's, that instead of looking outside of our, our uh, state boundaries, we've always kind of been eyeballing one another as, as whether or not we can trust each other. Um, whereas, you know, 
Mississippi or Louisiana or Florida, uh, you know, there were people rushing down there for land and, and, and various reasons, opportunity, mm-hmm. various reasons. Um, but North Carolina has kind of always been what it is. And, and I think that has, has made us a little more um, inconsistent as, as a native people, not inconsistent in terms of our values, but, but inconsistent in how we want to be identified as a state. Hmm. So do you think that, and you, you think that, that inconsistency shows up in the nature of our literature? I, it does. I think it does. You know, and I think, you know, all stories, all, all the best stories come from tension. Um, a story without tension is just a set of events. And when that tension is between neighbors or when that tension is between family members, that's some of the most delicious tension that stories can spring from. And, and that's why I think North Carolina has so many great storytellers in it. Is there a writer who made you... I don't know what the word is, giddy <laughs> to meet, like somebody who you're just like, oh, I can't believe oh, I'm gosh, meeting yeah. this writer. I still get overwhelmed. Um, you know, I went to uh, to graduate school in Louisiana to study under Ernest Gaines, who passed oh, away uh, a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah, that's a, he's a legend. And yeah, he was my first real literary rock star hmm. that, especially living literary rock star. And I went to graduate school there because, again, you know, I, I met his work in college. I remember buying his story collection, Bloodline, from the university bookstore in Asheville. And, um, and reading it and realizing, oh, my gosh, here's somebody who writes about land, who writes about old people, who writes about the oral tradition in the same way that my grandparents talked about these things. And it just so happened that he was, a, you know, a black uh, writer born and raised in a plantation in 1933 in Southwest Louisiana. I was a, a middle-class white guy born in a former mill town in, 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 yeah. in, in North Carolina. But aesthetically, um, I knew I could learn from him. And I knew yeah. that the things that he was doing were things that if I worked hard enough on the page, I could envision myself doing. And so he was Mm. the first writer that I really set my sights on. Mm. And I can clearly remember the first time I met him. I can, I remember, you know, meeting so many heroes. I remember meeting Ron Rash for the first time, like in an airport. (laughs) Uh, I was super nervous. I remember meeting, you know, Lee Smith or Gail Godwin or Clyde Edgerton, Mm -hmm. um, so many, so many people that I, you know, held out, um, Alan Gerganis, uh, that I held out Randall Keenan, that I held out as these kind of untouchable godlike, um, talents that ended up being like, just so incredibly kind and generous and, and human. And, um, but yeah, and I still get, I still get overwhelmed. Uh, I still send writers, Mail, even if it's their first novel, if I read something that blows me away, I'll still fire off giddy emails all the time to people whose books that I've really enjoyed. Um, so yeah, I still, I still do all that stuff. I'd, I'd have loved to have met Gaines. He was wonderful. He was wonderful. I've gotten to spend some time with Wendell Berry and uh, yeah. he went to Stanford. He, he's mm-hmm. part of the Stegner Fellowship with Gaines. Yeah. So you had like that class, had, I think Larry McMurtry, Ken Kesey, Wendell Berry, Ernest Gaines, all yeah, studying under Wallace Tilly Olson. Yeah. yeah. Tilly Olson was there. Uh, a story about Wendell Berry. When, when, once I was 
I took Gange's last fiction writing workshop. It was the um, it was the fall of 2003 was his last workshop before he mm. retired. And he and his wife moved back to the land where he was born and raised. They built a house up uh, just about an hour uh, west of Baton Rouge in an area called False River in Oscar, Louisiana. And uh, we would go visit him. Some friends and I and the department chair would go visit them and like have lunch. And, and one day uh, we took him his mail from the university. And uh, he was, we were sitting at the, at the table during lunch and he was going through the mail. He's like, oh, here's a, here's a letter from Wendell. And uh, <laughs> he got out this letter and, and Wendell Berry had, it had this gorgeous handwritten poem that he'd written for, for Gaines inside. Mm. And he read it, read it to us. And then I don't remember how long later it was. I went back to visit or something. I was still in graduate school and I pulled up to, to the house and uh, Wendell Berry and his wife were sitting on the porch. And so I got to spend oh, wow. in the day he, they were visiting and uh, they hadn't seen each other in a long time. So I just got to kind of spend the day. That's awesome. Listening to them reminisce. That that must have been pretty fun. It was. It was a once in a lifetime, and I was aware of it when it was happening. Yeah, those guys is just sitting around telling stories and you know mm-hmm. shooting the breeze. Must have been the workshop. Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple more questions for you. Got a couple sure. more minutes. <clears throat> I got to go open the bookstore here in a second, but <laughs> but you know you mentioned earlier how when you were in school there were some books that you were not you didn't, you weren't necessarily, they weren't in the, they weren't in the classroom yet. They weren't part of academia. And it brought up the idea of the classics, you know, for me and how, you know, the academy sort of, there's a sort of canon that mm-hmm. the, that gets used in the classroom, whether that's the high school classroom or even the middle school classroom for that matter. Um, and then certainly in higher ed, w- what role for you do the classics play? And I'm using the classics generally just for the sake of conversation. This kind of bigger con bigger term what role do those kind of books play for you as a reader now and particularly as a writer i mean are you turning to anna karenina or the russian masters like george saunders does or are you you know are you looking back at the hawthorns or early american writers or shakespeare for that matter yeah you know part of my phd study was in early american lit and when i was teaching on the collegiate level and tenure track positions, I was oftentimes teaching, you know, William Bradford and John Winthrop and yeah. Anne Bradstreet and Phyllis Wheatley and all these early American writers. And I think when I go back that far, what I feel and what I'm able to identify very easily is kind of the, the early mythic rumblings of America, like what America could be. And then you trace that ideology of the American dream or the, or the westward expansion or all, all of these thematic ideas, you trace them through and you, you ask yourself, how have those ideas been delivered on, um, mm. not delivered on in contemporary yeah. America? And that's an interesting yeah. exercise for a writer to take on. Um, but when I think about the classics, whether they be British or American or, or an, an other, you know, uh, other nations, um, or people's, I think about like something that's fixed and, and the comfort in that being fixed that, that generations have said, this is important. This is foundational. Mm-hmm. This is somewhere where you should start. And so when I read, you know, Edith Wharton, I read age of innocence for the first time a couple of months ago, I thought, you know, this isn't it. This I'm learning something foundational about class and social structure in New York. Um, in the you know 19th century that I that I didn't mm-hmm. know before and, yeah. and this is valid and this is important 
And, and how does that come to bear on my understanding of social class in North Carolina in 2021? Yeah. Um, and so I think the classics for me offer that ability to look back and, and draw those lines, those lines of dissent, those lines of aspiration, those lines of failure, perhaps in terms of what was promised and what's been delivered. Um, so I, 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 I like going back to, to classic books. Mm. Can you read something like, you know, the Odyssey or Chaucer or, you know, maybe something a little bit more recent than that, uh, Chekhov or something like that and say, and read the prose. A lot of those are in translation, obviously. I think I just chose all things that need to be translated. <laughs> but can you read the prose from a different era that to many ears now feels stilted or a little old fashioned and say, this is what makes that prose great and and these are parts of that way of writing that I want to incorporate into my own writing, even though I'm writing in North Carolina in 2021. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I read Anna Karenina for the first time a couple of years ago and thought, Oh man, uh, not only the prose, because as you said, it's a translation, but some of the points of view and some of Mm. the purposeful slips and points of view, Mm. um, there's a scene where there, where I I can't remember whose point of view you were in maybe Anna's or Vronsky's or, or someone and just for a moment, the point of view slips into a waiter passing through a room and then it slips back into the main character. Just little flourishes like that are things that I mm. can really take from it. You mentioned Chekhov. Ernest Gaines was a huge Chekhov fan. He was a huge fan of the Russian writers because the way they wrote about peasants was mm. the way he wanted to write about rural people, working people in Southwest Louisiana. Mm. And so, you know, I fell under his sway. So I've definitely fallen under their sway. Mm. And uh, <laughs> when you read, it's like going to the gym. You know, you might not want to do the bench press, but maybe you do have a leg day, right? Nothing is wasted. When you read, nothing is wasted. No matter what you're reading, nothing is wasted. Mm. Well, I've kept you as long as I said I would, but I've got two just kind of quick, kind of rapid fire questions I'd love to throw at you here at the end. Um, Who is one writer, since we're talking about the classics, who is no longer living that you would most like to, to be able to meet or to have met it could be you could be going any era just they're not living right now gosh uh <laughs> we'll I talk magical say, realism <laughs> yeah um you know i would have loved to have met tony morrison mm-hmm. um i would have loved to have met uh a writer named charles chestnut who's from eastern oh, north yeah. carolina he died in 1932 um I think Charles Chestnut might have been it. I, I would have loved to, mm. to, 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 to speak with him about political and cultural history in North Carolina, Reconstruction. Um, there's a, what's the that story that, that you would, there's a story he wrote that gets read a lot in university courses. What's one, where would you, where would you tell people who are listening that have never read Chestnut to start? Well, he's, he's best known for his conjure stories, stories of, uh, you know, of a uh, plantation folklore. Mm-hmm. Um, but Perhaps his best book is a novel called The Marrow of Tradition that came out in 1901, and it's about the 1898 race massacre in Wilmington, which was the only successful coup in American history where local government was overthrown by white supremacists. And that happened in 1898, and Chestnut wrote a novel based on that at three years later, and it ruined his career, and he was kind of run out of the literary establishment. He was a Black writer writing, obviously, in the white literary yeah. establishment. And that book was reviewed as being a bitter, bitter book by William Dean Howells. But of course, we know now it essentially uncovers the truth of that event. Um, but the marrow of tradition is where I would encourage people to start. Is that the event that there's a new book by recently? Is it David Zucchino? Yep, it the, won the Pulitzer yeah. Prize yeah. last year called yeah. Wilmington's Lie. 
yeah. um, that won the Pulitzer Prize, David Sacchino, writing about the Wilmington race riot. All right. Last question, then I'll let you go. Is there a book you read every year? Um, I'm always thumbing through Look Homeward Angel, if not actively reading it. And I'm always thumbing through Kane uh, by Gene Toomer, if not actively mm. reading it. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And, oh, thank uh, you, man. This was fun. Get back to those emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was Wiley Cash. I'm really grateful to him for the conversation. Please do look up When Ghosts Come Home from your local bookshop. If you'd like to order it from Goldberry Books, you can head over to bookshop.org slash shop slash Goldberry Books. Or, of course, you can come on into the shop sometime. Thanks so much for listening to Bibliography. Please be sure to tell your friends about the show in whatever form you would like to do that. We would certainly appreciate it. For all of us here at Goldberry Books, I'm David Kern. Until next time, happy reading.